and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. G.D. Wright is a sculptor, fabricator, and design consultant, working most often these days with metal, cast concrete, and blown glass. He also consults with other artists to help them realize their own visions, and has collaborated on and managed many monumental skill artworks and constructions. After growing up and attending college in the Midwest, he then made a career and name for himself in Oakland, California. Recently, he relocated to Austin to start his career anew and be closer to his young son. We had a great conversation that I think you'll definitely enjoy. And if you're hearing this before August 18th of 2019, be sure to visit his current exhibition at Dimension Gallery on Springdale. Here is David. Hey, David. Well, thanks for being on my podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you having me out. So, uh, we connected, was it last year, through a Kamiba art show on 6th Street. And I moderated an artist talk with you and like four or five other artists that were in a group show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a really nice um, kind of first show for me outside of the Dimension Fellowship. Yeah, and that's also something I definitely want to get to um, towards the end of the interview, talk about your current show at Dimension Gallery. But I guess for anyone that's not familiar with you and your work and who you are as an artist, maybe what, what's your kind of intro? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you've been out and seen my work at different shows around Austin, I'm the bubble cage guy. Okay. I have a, <laughs> a generally a rigid steel structure that I like to fill with kind of bulbous soft forms, you know, either a cast concrete, blown glass, and it kind of creates this undulated juxtaposition between a very linear hard thing and a soft kind of enveloping expanding mm-hmm. material. But yeah, I work in various scales, trying to build them as big as possible. Ultimately, would like to do a lot of kind of public installation, monumental scale. I just got to figure out the finances and the the fabrication of those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Uh, you sent me a bunch of materials and things you've written about your work. And um, I wanted to note, you said your work is a reflection of how you interact with the world, hopefully polarizing, hopefully inspiring and obsessive compulsive and its attention to detail. Mm -hmm. Does that still feel true? Uh, Definitely. The necessity for me to make things kind of at the highest quality that I'm capable of doing is great in the shop, great on projects, tough on my personal relationships. Mm. And 
I really, I believe in craft kind of as a first piece for my work. I want people to come in and have a little bit of shock and awe about how the components are comprised, how they come together. One of the first kind of linchpins for my work was like, how do I create these processes that are hard to diagnose, hard to Mm. break down? Mm -hmm. And in some ways I assumed an elevation of the work through kind of like the fascination over how it was comprised or how they made it. Mm -hmm. And you talk about like people having or the ideal being someone having like kind of a visceral reaction to the work. Like was there a first moment you remember that happening with a work or are moments where that's happened and then you're like, just like that kind of just feeds you or something like that. Yeah. Um, the first time I ever kind of stumbled into this process and aesthetic was through a group show that was called confliction within containment. And I built this metal cage and wanted to cast some plaster in it. And I tried to put a trash bag inside of the cage and just fill it all the way up. And it kept exploding and was ridiculous in weight. And I was just like, okay, we've got to find a better way to do this. So as I was trying to find kind of a smaller encasement material, which I'll just like let the cat out of the bag. I use balloons to Mm -hmm. cast these things. I found that the balloon could kind of nest and envelop and wrap around components of the cage. And in doing that, it was very like supple and it had this emotional quality where there was like this kind of more human element Mm. that was dealing with a more like rigid structural element. And I started having this parallel in my brain about like society and what the norms are, how we're supposed to live our lives, what the rules, you know, like you're now a parent, so you need a nine to five and you need to, you know, drive a nice minivan and you need to have a mortgage on a house and like my own feeling of discomfort in that and feeling like I didn't fit into that shape. Yeah. Is a big part of the work. And it wasn't until the last couple of years that I realized I mean, I should have probably earlier But the reason why I gravitate so much to this is because my own kind of inner turmoil and conflicts where I'm like shifting between acceptance of where I'm at or pushing for something more. Um, Yeah, you talk about and you're writing about cages, these cages that we're in that we are. They're like self-made cages or ways of perceiving yourself or your life or your limits, limiting beliefs, maybe even so interesting that you create these cages and then you're also kind of like battling and examining and trying to dismantle these cages in your own life to have more expansion and possibilities. Yeah, we have societal standards, kind of like what I was speaking on before, but there's also, you know, the mirror of other people, depending on your environment, depending on how people perceive you, they'll put you into a box. And it's so interesting. It's like the more you worry about the box that will be created by other people, the more you get in this mirror loop where you give people what they want and then you become the thing they perceive you as. So I go back and forth between like, do I think about how I come across? Do I want to fit in? Or do I want to be this like random kaleidoscope explosion that people have to just either like deal with? or take a step out of the way as the train's coming through. Like, I don't... It's a very interesting... um, It just makes me think of your work at Dimension. It's like these rigid frames and then these, like, fluid-mirrored 
forms bulging out of them. I mean, I don't know. There's some parallel there, I think, for sure. A lot of my love for the glass and then silvering the interior of it is you seeing yourself. Mm. I think it creates a additional layer of connection for the audience to kind of find that goal that I have in them perceiving themselves as this object within the cage. Mm. And a big part of that show is kind of exploding out of that cage because everything I've ever done with my kind of current body of work has been this contained expanding within the cage form. And with this latest show, a big part of it was kind of like exploding that. I tried to imagine this mirror that was resting on the wall and then this invisible object that, you know, like a meteor crashing down to earth, exploding this perception of everything being caged and then the room filled with these bulbous forms that have now like broken free and then they're kind of still floating. Mm. Like if I had had more finances or a, a little more money when I was making the show, I would have ordered some of those 30 foot expanding weather balloons yeah. and filled the rafters with them because even when we can't see the cage, we're still within cages. And I feel like having those weather balloons up in the rafters would have shown that the box that is the gallery is a cage. And it's like, there's levels of perception where we're aware of the cages we live in and then other layers where we're not, you know, like I wear a watch to make sure I'm not late. I'm not bothered by the watch, but I'm confined by it. You Mm -hmm. know, it kind of controls my movement. But it also creates structure in your life, which can be helpful, too. Yeah, got us out of the dark ages. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess all this makes me wonder kind of like where your journey as an artist began. I mean, has it always been obvious to you since a young age that you wanted to be an artist? Or is it something that developed later in life? Uh, I grew up in a rural uh, town in the middle of Indiana. Uh, like drive your tractor to school Wednesday type town. Um, (laughs) Didn't really have art classes growing up. Uh, Don't come from an artistic family. It wasn't until I was in college, actually, uh, going to a technical school in Indianapolis that I wanted something as an extracurricular elective that would allow me to kind of release some of this pent-up energy from Mm. the architecture classes I was taking. So you were studying architecture. Yeah. Okay. And I took a kind of intro to 2D art class and every object I made within it, I was like really inspired by and really drawn to like experiment more with. And as I learned more about the architecture field and signing other people's names on my work for like 25 years, trying to build a name or a business large enough to be able to start being an independent architect, I realized that the creative field as an artist was going to be a lot more fulfilling. Even if I couldn't find like financial security, it would still give me a more inspired life to live richly was kind of the, Mm. the shift. So I went from kind of these preliminary architecture classes to taking more and more of the art classes. And when I transferred down to Indiana university, once I had like a good enough GPA for the direct admit, Uh, When I started there, I shifted into a sculpture program Hmm. and started taking, you know, it was still College of Arts and Sciences, so I had to do the same prerequisites as like a nurse major or like a, you know, people taking to try to become like a biologist or things Mm -hmm. like that. But then my directed area of study was sculpture. So Mm -hmm. I got to take more and more classes and dive more and more into that. I mean, from an early age, I was a Lego kid. 
Yeah, me too. So it was already kind of in me. Yeah. The designing, building, making. But I I never realized that art could be an option. Like I yeah. didn't have family support for it. I didn't have, you know, you can do it. Like yeah. my dad was always like, if you get good grades, I'll pay for your college. And then I got good grades. I was like, dad, I've got good grades and I'm going to sculpture school. Let's do this. And he's like, well, if you go to business school, I'll pay for your college. Yeah. And I was like, all right, talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So did you also growing up just have kind of like the rural experience of just like, you know, kind of making building things yourself in a sense that weren't art, just like, you know, repairing things. I mean, it's kind of part of farm life, right? So the original thing that got me into kind of construction was uh, whenever I would get in trouble, which was all the time, I wasn't allowed to get out of being grounded until I did some kind of random home repair for my dad. So it'd be like... (laughs) Oh, that was a pretty bad thing you just did. You can get out of the house again and go hang out with your friends once you sand and restain all the windows in the house. Whoa. Or once you like, <laughs> you're like, okay, there's a hole in the wall. You know, once you repair that, then you can go back out and ride your bike around the neighborhood. Oh, wow. So I grew up resenting, but also learning that yeah. we were capable of doing these things. Yeah. And so in school, do you feel like you lucked out in any way by just kind of finding great teachers, mentors? I mean, was that part of the inspiration or kind of uh, momentum for you? Yeah, I mean, when I was going to IU and was in the sculpture program, it was very craft-oriented. A lot of the graduate students had an attention to detail and a level of quality in their work that really inspired me. Also, the head of my department just designed and built really beautiful sculptures. So it wasn't, it was more object-driven, and less of the the word escapes me right now. It's like when there's a full page description on the wall, yeah, and then there's two refrigerator racks on the ground with a red light and a blue light. Like that world never drew me in. Yeah, and I I think it's like more experimental, more theoretical. Yeah, yeah, abstract, more layered. Right? Like people that probably maybe like started off being writers, and they're they're juggling the between of that like the object, but also again, kind of going back to, I don't like telling people what to think about my art. It's like without the description on the wall, there's no way to access the work in front of you. So the work itself becomes more about the statement and then you're probably wanting to come at it more from a craft perspective. I think so. And there was also a a guy in my sculpture program that would like, like the example of the refrigerator rack or like (laughs) pull the like water mechanism from a fridge and then like put a green light on it and then title it like David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty disappear. And I'm sitting there going like, okay, cool. Like I understand there's an art history modality that justifies the action of the creation of this experience. But for me, I am most intrigued by the people that are willing to spend like the 50 hours getting that line just right. But I mean, that's everything's opinion. So that's just mine. So what was your work like in college? Like, do you see kind of like the genesis of what you're doing now then? Um, What were you drawn to? Well, I knew that I had a great opportunity having that many artists coming into critiques, very specifically trying to help me understand and evolve my work. So each semester I gave myself kind of a set of rules to Mm. try different things. So I spent like a semester working with found objects, tried to integrate those into these scenes that I would create around them. 
did a lot of random experimentation with like kinetic sculpture, you know, failed a bunch of times in terms of like what I actually showed people. Mm. Learned a lot about my own process of mm. kind of needing the deadline. Like I make this comment that's like deadlines are my jam. And mm -hmm. it's something about like that moment that everything has to be done. You know, if it's two months before that moment, I get caught in my head trying to make like, what is the right decision? What material should I use? What process? How do I make it work? And as that timeline gets shorter and shorter and shorter, I get into this place where it's like, okay, no more questioning, only movement. I trust my instincts and I mm. keep moving. And I, I found that. I think that's maybe one of the best lessons I got from my undergrad in sculpture was finding out that when I get into that crunch is when I actually shine because the questioning of myself kind of goes out the window, like trusting your instincts, moving forward, and then believing that everything's going to balance out just right. Like with this show that I just put together at Dimension, mm -hmm. I didn't have the laser cut kind of reflective triangles until the night before the show opened. And I originally set it up to have it sooner and it just didn't work out to have it. And then I went through this whole thing in my head where I was like, maybe I shouldn't use these. I'm not really into it. And then on the very last night before the opening, they showed up and they filled a gap in the composition of the show that without them, I think it would have had a very different feeling in mm. there. So it was like having it in that last moment, needing a solution, the brain, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So it's like, I have an object I have a, a need and it just became it without that obsession over like, does this work? Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't. What do people think? I need a bunch of opinions. You're just like, this is what it is. Yeah. So what are some memorable works that you did in college or, you know, things that really stand out to you as like, wow, that I really did something I'm proud of. So once I had found the bubble cages, which originally they were called rigid and fluid systems, mm -hmm. and I talked about it very like linearly, but I started casting water. So I would take mm. the cage, take a bunch of like party balloons, put watercolor paint into them, fill them up with water, fill in the cage, put it into like a large scale chest freezer, freeze the object, pull it out of the freezer, pull all the balloons off. And then for my thesis show... I built all these water catchment pedestals. So they had like a quarter inch gap around the outer edge that during the show, the piece would melt and paint the canvas that was the square of the top of the pedestal that it rested on mm -hmm. and then roll over the edge and go into this pedestal that was rubberized on the inside. So if people had the opportunity to come into the gallery when there weren't a lot of people there, you could hear the dripping mm -hmm. into the pedestal and that shift and kind of the feeling around like early bird gets the worm. Like it was this fun thing where it was like, like I had two water pieces in the show. One was pretty small and would melt every day. So at the beginning of the day, it was this very bulbous undulated thing. And by the end, it was just the cage sitting on the pedestal. And with the other one, because the gallery was only open four hours, it would basically come out of the chest freezer, go into the show for those four hours. So you're resetting it every day. And okay. then go back yeah. into the chest freezer. Mm. So for the larger one, it took a whole week for it to melt. Mm. So with that one, you know, it would come out of the chest freezer at the beginning of the day. So if people were there at the beginning of the gallery hours, it had this like frosted glass look. Mm -hmm. And then if you came later, it was like a melted popsicle. And yeah. it was kind of like, <laughs> I liked that 
I, I felt like it would inspire people to come maybe more than once. Mm, yeah. As well as like notice the shift of like the impermanence of the work. And I feel like it really related to the rigid and fluid systems because I had this cage that wasn't changing. And then the fluid form was always in shift. Yeah. So the rest of that show was like weather balloons that were deflating or popping and plaster that I kind of, in my brain, I saw it as like an outdoor sculpture where the plaster over time would break down, ultimately mm-hmm. leaving you just the cage. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't until I became a father and I was like, okay, these things might need to last if I want anyone to collect them. Yeah, yeah. That I started doing like the concrete and the blown glass. and. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that transition. So you kind of started with these works that are more ephemeral and then you maybe discovered these other or start experimenting with these other ways of making your work. And then it became a little bit more still like with the glass seemingly fluid, but also more permanent. Um, when did that trend, like what happened after college? Like mm-hmm. when did that transition to those working with different materials happen? Gotcha. Uh, short version of that story. Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> sure. I, I hitchhiked with a bunch of friends trying to figure out what I was going to do when I got out of school. What major yeah. city was my art dream going to come true in? And I found Oakland, California, and stumbled into a place called American Steel Studios that is the nation's largest art studio. It was like 240,000 square feet in two buildings. It was like two city blocks. And it was just full of artists building monumental sculptures. I mean, Mm. the first time I came in the building, there was like a work that I had just been learning about, had to remember the artist and the year it was made in like an art history class collecting dust in the corner. You wow. Know, it was this giant old steel factory that had been converted and a bunch of artists were just renting out slices of it. And we had like seven ton gantry cranes so mm. we could pick up like, Oh, that shipping containers in the way and you just pick it up, and move it out of the way. It's like no big deal. Whoa. Got a little controller. <laughs> um, so that's what got me in Oakland. And then when I was there, I've always been interested in teaching. So I started working at a art center called the crucible And working there, teaching welding and sculpture classes, I became friends with a couple glassblowers, started talking to them about the work that I was making, and they said, oh, you know, those forms look a lot like what glass would look like inside of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't build them out of steel, though. Like, you'd have to build them out of copper, because the expansion coefficient, blah, 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 blah. So, because they talked about glass as a liquid, that shifts mm. over time. Like even in the hard form, it shifts over time. It gave me a segue to justify bringing the glass in as a fluid system. But they were already established this limit in a way saying like, Oh, it has to be done this way. Right. Yeah. No, every, every <laughs> glass blower I talked to said that if I try to put it into steel, it's going to break. Okay. And I was like, well, let's try it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never had any of them break if not from either my own mistake or some of the glass blowers I've worked with. Like if the wall of the glass is too thin, mm-hmm. it could pop by setting it on a table. Or if I get frustrated and bump it into a wall, I can crack yeah, it. Right. But once the glass is set in there and it has survived the process of creating it, mm-hmm. it's generally pretty robust. I wonder what those people thought when they saw your work then, or if they did. <laughs> I'm like, I'm oh, sure, okay, well. I'm sure there was a, a little bit of interest and intrigue and happiness and probably a little resentment because yeah. I, I generally have a 
problems with people telling me what I can and yeah, can't yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll usually, if somebody says something is impossible, I will generally work twice as hard to figure out how to do it. It's a good yeah. motivator. I'm starting to feel that myself a little <laughs> bit too. I'm just curious to back up a little bit and maybe explore like where did this desire to teach come from? Uh, okay. What's um, that about? I think a big part of it came from not feeling supported when I wanted to become an artist. Hmm. And not feeling like I had a community, not feeling like my family saw it as a good option for my life. And when I started teaching, it was like, oh, I need a little bit of secondary income, access to a shop because I don't have any tools. And then it evolved into like, wow, like a lot of these kids come in here and they have this passion, but they don't have anyone in their lives telling them like, it's worth it and you can do it. And you know, don't let anybody tell you being an artist is easy because it's way harder than a nine to five. Um, and I think seeing that seed of inspiration get transferred from like within mm. me into somebody else, yeah. even like the adults that come in and they're like, yeah, you know, I've been doing this, this job for 30 years and I feel like I don't have an outlet. And I thought maybe like welded sculpture would be fun. And then like by the end of the class, the adults and youth having that kind of like sparkle in their eye around it mm. i know that it travels on with them so i'm like expanding this passion that i have yeah and also just increasing people's belief that they really can do anything because there's so much that tries to convince us that you know we're not capable but it just takes like a little bit within you of a success or of somebody saying you know i really like that work or like somebody buying a piece that'll change the way you perceive your own ability to live and be this dream. Mm -hmm. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of society and life wants us to kind of trade in happiness for comfort. Yeah. And if something's not comfortable, then people will avoid it. And yeah. That's I, why I think a lot of people have such a, and myself included have such a hard time pivoting or changing our habits, you know, cause you just get comfortable in eating a certain way or living a certain way. And maybe it's not ideal or healthy. And then you try to, you just keep butting up against wanting to change that and do something different. And it's hard, you know, it's really hard. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm used to eating this way. I'm comfortable eating this way, but it's, and I'm, I'm headed towards heart disease or something and I need to make a change. And it, it is hard to make those changes. I, I what you're saying reminds me of something I made note of that you wrote. Uh, you say, all along the path of growth, we are tempted to give up. Our inner critic tells us that we should take the easy path and stay with the known. Don't push hard. If you go all in, you'll be surprised at what you can do. Your concept of self will become your structure for how you create your life. Don't give up on your dream ever. I imagine that's a message you give to your students <laughs> a lot and to yourself. <laughs> yeah, try to. Just like put it on a mantra in my forehead backwards so I see it in the mirror every yeah, time yeah. I look. Yeah, I, I, and maybe this is my response to dealing with so much of being told what I can't do. Mm -hmm. You know, it took a lot for me to realize that anything was possible. A lot of times when we approach our larger goals, like I want to be an artist that's collected around the world. I want to build monumental sculpture. I want to, I want to work with one client or work on one project for like two or three years and really take it to the level that it, it, it deserves to be. And in that, it seems kind of insurmountable. Like, how do we do that? Yeah. And I found that these really big goals are just a series of really small steps. Right. And we all, 
like if, if, if we know how to break it down, we can develop an approach. And if we nibble away at the thing every day, we'll ultimately get to the dream. So if we see just the dream, maybe that won't work. Maybe I should avoid trying to go down this path. It's really hard. But when you break it down to little tiny bits, it's a lot easier. I mean, there's like a guy that ate a 747 or something. Yeah, right. Like he didn't eat it in one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's a ridiculous example. Yeah, but. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you actually um, do that in your life? I mean, do you have like a very clear plan and goals, a five-year plan or something, and mm-hmm. you have daily tasks and habits? And I mean, are you just always chipping away at these things every day in a very disciplined way? Is that mm-hmm. what you're talking about? Uh. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I think, like, if you have your dream in your head, you start to see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's like when you buy a new car. Yeah, Like, right. let's say you, you go and everywhere. buy a new Tacoma, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like, wow, look at all these Tacomas on the road. It's like, okay, I want to build big art. I need to become more known as an artist. I need to work on larger and larger projects. I need to try to get my name out in the community. And then the opportunities in those situations kind of present themselves mm-hmm. to you, where mm-hmm. it's like oh, you know, maybe I should apply for that fellowship or, oh, there's this great grant that's coming up and that's totally in line with my goals with teaching or, I don't know, even the people you surround yourself with. Yeah. You know, if you're the kind of person that's trying to bring your dreams and goals to reality, it's important to surround yourself with other people that are doing that same thing. Because if you're in a kind of negative response bubble, then everybody ends up on the couch watching TV every night. Yeah. But if you're in a bubble of people that know that their work pays off over time and the whole trick is to not give up then you're surrounded by that more positive kind of creation fruition yeah so it's just like all those little bits it's like you just have to get up and go after it every day i mean i don't i spend a lot of time since moving here sitting in my studio being like am i making the right decision like am i going to find the clients i need am I going to be able to fund my life and my son's life? Mm-hmm. Because I don't have the same kind of hustle and bustle that I had back in Oakland. Cause I had a name in the community. Like people would come to me to help them solve problems with their works. Um, yeah. Let's go back to Oakland and just kind of finish that chapter of your life. I mean, not that we even really got that far into it, but mm-hmm. just maybe give me an idea of what that looked like for you, that li- that life in Oakland before you decided to move to Austin. Yeah. Um, So we can relate it back to like bigger goals. Like I want to build monumental art. I want to be well-funded, drive a decent car, have high quality food, right? So moved out to Oakland, trying to figure out how to build big art, Uh, started teaching at the Crucible and then was approached by a gentleman that ended up becoming my business partner because he was working on a Burning Man project. He was trying to build a 33 foot tall chaotic pendulum and needed a welder to do some of the structural welding, make sure it was going to be safe to be out in the desert at Burning Man. Started working with him, built that project. And then somebody called the Crucible and was like, Hey, I've got this sculpture I want built that I want to send out to Marfa, Texas. You know, are y'all interested in building it? And they were like, well, scale and scope. We don't really have the dedicated staff to do it, but this guy, David, builds giant art because of that Burning Man project. So then went and had a meeting with that artist, came up with a design plan to make his weird system work out in the desert where it's like negative degrees at some points in the year and really hot at other points in the year. And he wanted this like metal and plastic thing and it all needed to work together. So came up with a system that worked for that. And then he hired us at, you know, the best hourly rate I'd ever made. 
and paid for the studio at American Steel Studios. Mm. So he was like, you know, we need a place to build this. And I said, well, actually, there's this studio down the road that is ideal. And that was like the first iteration of the goal becoming the reality. Like I moved here to be in this studio, didn't have the funding, didn't have the experience, got a little bit of experience, got the funding, and then got that studio funded. And then we built a couple other Burning Man projects. You know, the Burning Man scene is great for artists that want to build big that never have, because mm. they'll give money through their honorarium program to a good idea, even if there's very little experience. Mm. So, you know, that 33-foot-tall pendulum became a 42-foot-tall pendulum. You know, neither of us had ever built anything that big. Um, we built another piece that was a video feedback projection piece that was like two 23 foot tall walls that were 30 feet long that had like 794 projection screens on it to do this weird infinity loop video feedback thing. And they gave us money to build it. And then after we'd done a couple of those, we're working on this project for Marfa. People started going, okay, so like these guys want to do design consultation, structural design, fabrication, project management, and then kind of the momentum of that river started to draw things in. And we just got more and more projects, grew our studio to a larger and larger space, started bringing in more of our friends to help fabricate it. And ultimately we were building like, you know, three projects simultaneously with like 15 to 20 hours a week on each one, employing like all our favorite designer builder friends Mm. had this big, awesome studio and we were doing like high quality, high exposure projects. Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. So, you know, that whole world kind of self-manifested through that direction of, like, I want to build big art. Mm -hmm. And then you were saying that at at a certain point, you kind of shifted to projects that were a little bit more about public service or kind of helping people. Yeah, it just wasn't... I found in time that I wasn't as fulfilled by this thing that I thought I would be. And part of it was... That happens, doesn't it? (laughs) Maybe my, my... because I was building other people's work, maybe that was part of it. And I had an opportunity come up where I was originally hired to do kind of project management, budgeting, and metal fabrication for this bus conversion, basically turning a kind of decommissioned public transit bus from San Francisco into a mobile GED school. And came in to help kind of land the project, my OCD budget, Excel spreadsheet world. Yeah. <laughs> um, the lead on it after we got the first check basically embezzled a bunch of money and disappeared. So oh, wow. I was kind of at this fork in the road where it was either we walk away from the project, we're not in contract, this guy messed it up, but I saw that it would never come to reality. Yeah. Or at least take years in litigation and then half the money would be gone and all this stuff. So I was just like, I looked at my friends who were also my collaborators on it and I said, let's just do it. Yeah. Like, let's take it over. And that's what we did. So we had a grant from the Rauschenberg Foundation, a Google Impact grant. We were funded by the SF Sheriff's Department, and we converted this bus into a state-of-the-art GED school. Basically, Five Keys is a not-for-profit in San Francisco and kind of expanded into the greater state of California and originally went into prisons to help people get their GED and try to change the course of their lives through education. 
And then they said, okay, we're going to start doing these community centers where people can come in and get their GED. And then as they learn more about people having a hard time getting to classrooms, gang lines being like an opponent to people being able to make it to where the centers were, they were like, man, if we had a mobile school, we could take it to the neighborhoods that need it. And I just was really excited to be a part of bringing that to reality. So we kind of pushed for it. And then because this guy embezzled money, I had to like convince my friends to work for free for like four months to finish it. Like we never told the funders about the situation until the project was done. Mm. Cause I was afraid if we did that it would go cancellation yeah. litigation. Yeah. It never happened. So mm. we just like picked up the, the staff and mm. w- went after it. Wow. And I just, I, it was a totally different feeling going to like the unveiling and seeing yeah. all these people whose lives it were going to change. It was going to change. And, it just felt like I was taking the skill set I had developed and putting it to something of much better use mm-hmm. than just for parties or for cool things to look at. Yeah. Which is still fun. I, I mean, I'm, it's still, I mean, uh, you know, the, a lot of the Burning Man stuff that you're talking about, it's very awe inspiring. And yeah. Uh, and you can definitely there's a place aff- for that for sure. Yeah. You affect people, whether consciously or not, through the space they inhabit. So if you can bring something in that inspires and intrigues, then it brings that energy into their lives as well. So I totally agree. I'm not against it. I mean, I still really want to build monu- monumental art of these like strange bubble cage things and yeah. have them, have them everywhere. <laughs> um, I just, if I'm going to be hired to do a job, it's nice for that job to have a greater impact. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why it's hard for me to find work here. Cause I could probably build like a ton of stuff for South by Southwest if that was like my vibe. But so much of what I've seen is like all this material, like all these resources and all this energy goes into it. And then once the event ends, all the stuff gets like thrown away Hmm. and it's just, I don't know. It's just, I I just feel like I'm past that point. Seems like there should be some kind of a way or program or effort put into recycling those things into public art or something that's useful, use those materials in some way. I'm sure in a lot of ways they are. Mm. I mean, this is just my little bit of experience for what I've seen compared to my own assumptions and like the cage that I carry Mm -hmm. as it relates back to it. I'm just not super, this is going to get me in trouble, I'm sure, but I'm not super interested in taking like I'm not super interested in the idea of an artist who has a talent being hired by a corporation that's kind of ruining this world to convince the millennials to buy their product and in some ways my experience of South by Southwest is that yeah. mm-hmm. it's like come to this you know Pepsi throwdown yeah event Would, <laughs> I'm wondering if this you know I see a lot of our fellow artists installing work like in the Facebook offices. Do you feel mm-hmm. like that fits into that realm or, I mean, fa- Facebook is an interesting animal. I mean, you know, my opinion on it, it's like in some ways, I mean, this is kind of what a lot of people think, but it connects us as well as pushes us apart. Yeah. I mean, a lot of like for me at this point, I'm on Facebook. So my family can see pictures of me and my son and to see like what art events are next weekend. Yeah, true. Um, you know, I'm not against, I'm not against Facebook as an organization. I think it's in some ways totally changed the way we connect. I mean, I have like over a thousand friends, people I would never connect with in the same way. If it was still like through pen and ink or phone calls, you get to see the evolution of people's lives for good and bad. 
which I think is a really interesting kind of social experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, I relate Facebook and the funding of artists through that kind of like to the Burning Man thing. I mean, people that are trying to make their art dreams come true, if they can get picked up by an organization that's as high profile as that to get funded to build a project, especially because they kind of represented as an artist in residency. Yeah. It's not like, like with the Pepsi example where they'll have you design and build this thing and then your name's nowhere. Right. And it's just this object and you can tell your friends and market it and all that, but it's the Facebook artist in residency program seems like it's actually elevating the artist. It is kind of a closed loop though, in terms of access from the public. Like it's just for, employees of Facebook. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I didn't think that it would be that easy probably to go see these things in person, I'm assuming. I don't know. Um, I haven't heard of any kind of like art tour kind of thing where they bring in the public. And I, I and I have heard that, you know, if you're not an employee, yeah, then you're not going to see it other than through Facebook and Instagram. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so. so did anything else happen in Oakland before you decided to leave? And then what? how was that transition to Austin? Mm. Um, so my son's mom kind of kindled a relationship with a guy that lives here in Austin Mm -hmm. and they decided to kind of begin to build a life together. So she moved here and it took about four months of me being in Oakland without my son and watching him grow up on Facebook that I, I just realized that it wasn't worth it. And no matter what it took to figure out how to build a new life here, I needed to be present in his life. Yeah. So I had some friends that had just landed a monumental sculpture project for the city of Oakland. They needed a big studio and a bunch of tools. So I sold off my infrastructure and Mm. transferred over my lease and went down to one minivan worth of stuff Yeah. and moved out here. But weren't things also in Oakland kind of energetically coming to a close for you too, in a sense though. I mean, I think so. Yeah. As yeah. far as like your career, like your career path. Yeah. I had conquered or risen to the goals that I'd set for myself there in a lot of ways. I think staying there probably would have been a little easier to continue to rise because of the momentum. But in some ways I was becoming pigeonholed into the designer fabricator that with the component of the cost of living being so high, my operating costs for my studio, I definitely like couldn't say no to projects. So mm. I couldn't take the time to pivot into kind of applying and trying to go after my own works. Or be discerning, as, as discerning as you'd like. Yeah. There was that. And then after the ghost ship fire that you know took the lives of a lot of people in our art community out there. Mm. I don't know about that. I'm not 100% sure on the number, but it's... It was either 36 or 38 people lost their lives at this event that was in like a live-work converted warehouse that mm-hmm. a fire was started and people were trapped inside. Oh, and wow. It was a really bad situation. Basically, a lot of the fabric of that Oakland art scene is kind of people living and working out of these converted warehouses. Yeah. So once that happened, the developers had an angle to start pushing all the art communities out. Oh, wow. Whereas before, the city was kind of protecting and supporting the artists. Once that happened, there was this kind of fear Yeah. that, you know, what's going to be the next this ghost ship? Safe. Yeah. So they started shutting down communities. They started closing down art studios. Everything was like shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And a lot of people were being forced to move out of Oakland to mm. find the next kind of fertile ground. So that was happening at the same time. 
And, you know, I just felt like Austin would be a little more healthy, a little more well-balanced for me. Like I was in my studio 16 hours a day, you know, Mm -hmm. sleeping on the couch in my shipping container office. Like I just didn't have, I had the motivation to work. I didn't have the motivation to have my life work balanced. Yeah. And I knew coming here and being present with my son and having him half the time was going to ground me in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Give me an opportunity to, to kind of reset and find that next evolution and growth. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing like turning the page yeah. to find a new story. And that's yeah. kind of the, if I would have stayed there, it's like rereading the same page over and over. Yeah. So what's the Austin chapter been like so far mm. of your book? Um, Austin's been really great. I, uh, was fortunate enough to meet an awesome group of artists out here kind of early on through a friend of mine that lives here as well as friends that have come to visit that used to live here that knew some people in the art community. You go out to all the events, people seem pretty open. I'm the kind of person that'll walk right up and start asking you strange questions. Like I don't Mm -hmm. have a lot of boundaries. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But it's been really great. And I think that there is, like people notice who in this community is dedicated and putting all their energy in. And for those people, doors open. And Mm. I've, you know, been fortunate enough to be selected by Dimension Gallery to be a fellowship artist. I've sold a couple pieces through other art openings. I got a job teaching at the Contemporary, doing the same kind of thing I was doing in Oakland with like metal fabrication, sculpture, furniture design, mutant art bicycles. Um, (laughs) And then I do install and deinstall for the Jones Center as well. So when mm-hmm. they have new shows come in, we come in and work on that. But it's been it's been good so far, I think. Good for the first year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is yeah, your... I'm still getting after it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and you also, I don't know how recent this was, that you got a community initiatives grant to mentor high school students. Yes. Yeah. 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 Have you started that? Uh, not this Saturday, but the next Saturday is when it's going to begin. It's four weekends, Saturday from like noon to three, noon to four, depending on how everybody's feeling. Uh, but basically the goal with it is to bring in high school artists who are passionate about the arts, passionate about their work and try to help them break down the dream into manageable steps. Like we were talking about earlier. Um, So, like, the first week, I just want to kind of meet everybody, eat some snacks, talk a little bit about what each workshop attendee or student's passion is, you know, whether it's building big art or selling work at craft fairs or being a teacher or, you know, all the myriad of different approaches you can have in this art game. And then I'll go home, do a bunch of research, come back the second week, and talk to them about the little tiny steps they can take that'll lead them to the direction of their goal, whether Mm -hmm. that's how to apply for funding to help you go to college for art, how to, but my goal with these students is to take the people that aren't like fully supported by their family with a free ride to school and a ton of support and then buying all the materials to build their art. Like I want the people who like are passionate, but it's, it's hard. Yeah. And I, w- I want to help them understand that it's not as scary as people want you to think it is just mm. because they're afraid. So we'll do a couple weeks of that. And then we're going to do a workshop where we take a process I learned in a science class 
process that I've brought into my art. It'll either be these Lichtenberg etchings where we use the transformer out of a microwave to burn these like fractal lightning bolt patterns into a sheet of wood. Hmm. Um, or we'll do like an electrolytic etching where there's a saltwater bath. We run a current through it and we can etch designs into the surface of steel. But the main goal is to like show them like anything is art. Cause I think when you're younger, you're like, Oh yeah. You know, to be an artist, you're like painting or you're making things out of clay or it's just, everything is art. Anything yeah. can become art. And if you can find a way to move a process into creating these kind of empowering forms and interesting components of larger pieces, then I think it opens up kind of that interdisciplinary perspective and approach to art making. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be cool. And then we'll do a group critique where they all bring in their work and we talk about their work as well as how to talk about their art. And then I'm actually fortunate enough to be uh, next door neighbors with Fancy Fancy mm-hmm. Gallery over at Bohm Studios. And they are letting us do a little art show in there. So we'll do a little press. You'll hear about the dates on this later. But I want to create a show for them where people can come out, see their work, potentially buy some stuff. Because mm. again, having people come out, having people show interest, having people talk about it, having people purchase things again, just makes that dream a little more real Yeah, and shows them that it is possible. So just four weekends, you know, not super crazy, but yeah, it should be a lot of fun. That sounds great. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts about Austin in general? I'm just wondering, since you've been here for a year and a half. um, I have a hyperactive brain, so I have a lot of thoughts (laughs) about Austin. (laughs) Well, here's something you wrote. Um, I think if we, as a community, continue to create social outreach programming, that allow potential collectors to enter into the artist's world and catch a glimpse of what art life creates for those involved, it will draw them into purchasing work. Yeah, I definitely noticed a difference between the Bay Area and Austin in terms of works being purchased and yeah. collected. I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the people in this community are already working towards this goal of bringing the collectors in, so this isn't a new idea. I yeah. think Big Medium does a really great job with the East Austin and West Austin studio tours to hit the larger population outside of our art circle bubbles. And I think think that shift is occurring. I I just noticed that in the Bay Area, people collected art because they saw it as a way to put their finger on the culture of that moment and place. Mm. And I, I think... Austin is a little bit more experience-based, where people want to come to the openings, they want to be a part of the community, but there isn't that additional feature of like, you know what, this art would look really beautiful at my house. Like, people don't invest money in art, they invest money in experiences here, it mm-hmm. seems like. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're not seeing like the bigger picture of 10 years from now, like, oh, what the art scene was like in Austin in 2019, and I captured some something from that and now this person has gone on to do this and they're not thinking of long-term the kind of big picture i guess maybe yeah and this is just my experience so i'm sure you know it's not as robust as to be able to actually speak on this in a smart way but i've noticed that when artists are more diligent about certificates of sales for works that they've sold they keep a better record of kind of what their price point is, you begin to develop your work as an investment. And then people that see a trajectory of growth in the artist and their work, which takes time, they'll see the investment of purchasing the art in this moment as potentially creating a higher return later. And that's another thing in the Bay Area. It seemed like people were investing in the artists because it was like equity. Hmm. 
it, it was like a way to protect their money almost. And I just don't know if that culture is here as much. But also the Bay Area, like, income's out of control. Like, with the startups, there's, yeah. like, so many people that are 26 years old and have, you know, six figures in their bank account. Well, I think there's a few of those here. Yeah. So, so in a lot of ways, it's a status symbol yeah. as well. You know, I'm an art collector. Well, there's also an education curve on that, too, to where someone might feel like they could make a decision or discern, like, what artists might have a better career than another artist and then I'm going to invest in this artist like that's kind of a higher level of kind of knowledge I feel like too that probably a lot of people feel intimidated about yeah I definitely dropped my prices when I moved here I mean I, I dropped what I charge per hour to do work as well it's just a different community and I, I've sold a couple pieces so I, I feel like maybe I made the right decision in that realm also at this last show I tried to do a broader spectrum of kind of price points. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. There's like the one really fancy one in the wall that's like for a particular person or particular yeah. situation. And then there's like three kind of mid-range, still like fancier sculpture, but not super expensive around like the like $1,000 range. And then there's a bunch of objects in the space that are the mirrored glass that I decided to just do for like 200 a piece. Yeah. Because I've noticed at the openings, a lot of the people collecting the work are other people in this community. And I'd rather have a bunch of stuff out there as conversation pieces that could potentially lead to other opportunities, mm -hmm. as well as people taking home like little pieces of me. Yeah. So that they, it's like in their world, in their mind, in their, I want to spread it out more. Yeah. So I'm trying to see how that how that can work here in Austin. So it's a little bit of an experiment. And then I sold, you know, one of the $200 glass pieces at the opening. So it's like, okay, yeah, that was a good move. I appreciated those being there cuz I thought, oh, okay, I could I could buy something that yeah. he made if I wanted to. Yeah, and you I know. you know, I hate to say that it's important to me to sell art. I don't think that's as much mm. in the conversation here. I think people try to hide from that and say, no, 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 I'm just an artist for the passion. But I want to be an artist and just be an artist. I don't want yeah. it to be my hobby. I don't want to have a job and come art on the weekend. Right, and then you have to figure out a way to sustain yourself. And exactly. you actually have to make money and run it like a business, too. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I want to have fun with it. And I want to approach the art making with my passion, not what I think will sell. But I also want to create a level of craft and a level of quality in the materials I select that it elevates it to justify the cost. Because I, I want I want to just like go hang out in my studio and make art all day. And you can't do that unless you're funded. <laughs> I mean, there are... Okay, so another thing that I've never experienced that is here in Austin that I think is awesome is the cultural arts division. Mm -hmm. The hot tax, you know, the hotel occupancy tax. Yeah. The fact that there is dedicated money, and it is a substantial amount of money, that goes directly to artists, community initiative grants, groups and organizations that are helping to build and create this art scene. Art in public places, too. Yeah, and I think it's awesome. And I've, I've only ever experienced like the 1% on government building, mm. like in San Francisco, 1% of any new kind of state-funded project has to go to art. So if they're mm -hmm. building this giant new building, they've got to put something yeah, from, art, right, from right, local right. 
from not local artists, but from an artist on the grounds. Whereas here it's like very much dedicated to the community, which is, I think, you know, on the other hand, it can be a crutch. Like I've, I've heard like in this last year when funding has dropped for some of these organizations and they've relied on that grant that they've had to downsize and had to be careful about how they're spending money and or look for other funding options. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I really like it as a way to inspire, motivate, grow, create, but also you have to be careful not to fully rely on it and let it, let it make you stagnant because it could disappear because there's so many different opportunities here. There's so many different people trying to create the next thing, you know, that, that current, can either like pick you up and take you or roll right by you. And yeah. that's, I mean, I always have my hand in like 15 cookie jars cause yeah, I, don't, you have to I, don't, diversify, I don't trust right? anything. Really. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but I, I do think it's really awesome here that they have those kind of community initiative type things. I know because of a lot of your experiences working in Oakland and managing these projects, you're also uh, have been helping artists here locally in Austin with, um, you know, managing fabrication of different projects, public art projects and things like that. Is that true? Yeah. Um, so for about six years in Oakland, I ran that business. That was kind of like a design consultation, fabrication, project management thing. And then moving here, I still want to continue on that path. So I started another business. It's just called right artworks. And basically I'm just trying to be present for artists that are working on larger projects, whether it's being hired to like consult on designs and then they go and build it or being hired to do a design for them and build a foundation for a component, you know, a component or foundation for an object that, that they'll then go and finish or just fabricate and build things for people. Um, but yeah, with this last round of tempo 3d sculptures, I've worked with Darcy Book and Christy Stallop to help them. Um, Like with Darcy's, I built the pyramid for her kind of like amazing marble paintings and gold leaf works Mm -hmm. that she's going to put on the surfaces. And then for Christy Stallop, I built a like foundational metal structure to carry the weight of her like seven foot tall grackle she's making. Mm -hmm. And then I have another artist who is a tenant in the studio that I run that is building a larger steel structure that I've just been kind of available for design consultation. If she's interested, you know, just like, Oh, you got another brain or ear to listen if you're trying to work through an issue. And then I've worked with a couple other artists in town. Akarash and I have developed a couple projects and I do strange experimentation, problem solving to help people bring things to reality. And the whole point is like, we can do this. And if you're intimidated by it, don't be yeah like go after your dream sell the thing that you believe in and then we'll figure out how to make it we always make this joke that's like usually by the time we're done building something we know how to build it (laughs) yeah right right (laughs) that's kind of the Uh thing around it but yeah i'm definitely available for hire and have plenty of time in my schedule (laughs) yeah all right (laughs) and what's the best way to get a hold of you then if people wanted to start a conversation uh, Instagram, the yeah. GD right underscore art. Yeah. You can just shoot me a message on that. It's very chill. I also have a website with contact email, phone number, all that stuff on it. And it's just uh GD Very cool. Yeah. Well, maybe quickly before we 
talk a little bit more about Dimension Gallery and your show there. Um, could you just speak a little bit about being a dad, like what being a dad has done for your life? Yeah, uh, brought me back down to earth. I was getting kind of real squirrely out in kind of like this quest for my art dream. Mm-hmm. And I think my necessity to see it come to reality made me a workaholic. And I was like living in the studio and didn't have a lot of social life and didn't have a lot of like me time. And being a father, because he needs, you know, quality meals. He needs consistency. He needs a stable parent it has forced me to like rise to that occasion and mm. in a lot of ways been very healthy for me and it changed everything i mean before i had ember i was doing random projects living in a warehouse where i paid 300 a month like i could have basically done and dealt with anything and it would have been like whatever and once he was kind of on the way is when i started my business in oakland because i like knew to justify this art life i had to actually be able to take care of my child yeah Instead of my own very minimal necessities. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and it got me out of the Bay Area, got me to Austin, and in some ways, like, really, really kind of inspired me to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to be, like, the best example that you can be of what a good person is or someone that has passion and integrity. And Yeah, I mean, any any of your undealt with issues and traumas and stigmas and all that is going directly into the kid. Mm. It's it's not it's not what you like tell him or consciously say, it's what he sees and that's what he becomes. So it's it's forced me to take a hard look at myself and kind of the things I have not dealt with mm. from my past and from just just help me have that new viewpoint where it's like okay, I need to deal with these things cuz I don't want him to go through the same patterns that I have. I mean, the older I get, the more I realize that I'm just like my father. Yeah. And as much as I spent a good portion of my life hiding from that or running from that and not seeing the positives in it, as I get older and becoming a father, I realize like not only is his personality ingrained within me, but also his dedication and sacrifice and everything he put in to try to build a better life for us is also in me. And that's mm-hmm. a gift, you know? So I, it's, it's, made my relationship with my dad a lot better too. Oh, cool. Being a father, even though we still drive each other crazy. Still <laughs> still good. Still good. Well, that's good. I don't know if you want to talk about this or not. You had, maybe it was on your Instagram, you talked about helping to build this temple of time at Burning Man uh, about loss. Gotcha. Okay, so that, whole thing. Uh, that project I didn't oh, okay. uh, have anything to do with. Okay, okay. I just have a lot of respect for the artist. Okay, okay. And okay. also, when I started coming to Burning Man, like I was really into the Build Week because it was like these art communities from all over the world coming together, building these amazing works, coming out there, and we were all like kind of hanging out. And oh, do you have this size socket? And like blah blah yeah, blah yeah. blah. You know, the community of artists was really really enjoyable, but the event itself. I, I kind of see as like a, a frat party for rich kids. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, I'm not as into the event, although I do like seeing like that audience perceive the work and having that many people come out to that setting. I don't know if there's a better place to show monumental art than on a flat white sand desert in the yeah. middle of nowhere. But the temple that they build every year is something I've always really gravitated towards. Mm-hmm. And basically... There's kind of two main projects that come up every year. One is the man, 
where it's like burning the man, burning the patriarchy, burning the kind of rules and ideologies around this old society that I think needs to shift. And then the temple is this place of honoring and releasing pain. So what happens is they build this giant structure out of all wood, you know, no, no nails, no anything that can't burn. And people come in and they bring, you know, like to explain from my own experience. So I lost my mom four years ago and coming out into the temple and spending time meditating on the love and experience I had with her, bringing a picture putting it on the side of the temple, writing something about her and about what she did for me in my life as like really the only person that ever supported this art game that I was going Mm. after. And then you imagine that story that I have times however many people are filling the space. I mean, I think they sell 70,000 tickets and everybody has trauma. Everybody has loss. Everybody has the experience that I also had. And in that they're filling this space And then when it burns, there's this release. It's you're like, you're releasing that back into the ether, the universe, the greater. And when you see all that intention go up in flames, Mm. it really helps you understand that life is this eternally shifting and changing thing. And the more we hold on to things, experiences, people, jobs, all that stuff, the less present we are. Because everything's the only what do they say? Like the only thing you can count on in life is like death, taxes, change. Right. Everything's always shifting. And I think that temple allows people to do that. So that artist that I really love, David Best, has built a bunch of these temples. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's like he came out to a gramophone project we built out there one year. It was like this twenty four foot tall, thirty thousand pound gramophone. He came out and he was like, This is my favorite work on Playa this year and I like like got weak in the knees. I was like, Oh my God, this guy is so amazing. I can't believe he said that. So this artist after the Parkland school shooting, right? I think that's what your post was about. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. He built a temple out there Mm -hmm. for the community that had gone through this absolutely terrible situation Mm -hmm. where they could have that same experience. Yeah. And then the city supported, you know, burning this massive structure in the middle of town Wow, I was just really moved when I saw his post about it. And I wanted to let people know like, Hey, Burning Man, you know, is in some ways a shit show, Yeah, but there are components of it that are trying to touch on a greater thing. And this is one of those things. And one of those people that's looking at the bigger picture. And Mm I, yeah, I just have a lot of respect for that, that whole experience out there. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like very in line with the kinds of things that you want to do, making a making a positive difference in people's lives. And yeah, it's easy to think about yourself, but to sacrifice for the people that that maybe don't see their light or don't believe in themselves, or you know, even if it's way harder for you because you're present for somebody that's maybe toxic in your life. They're only toxic because they're in pain. Like nobody wants to suck. Like if we knew better we would all be amazing people and have tons of friends and love and all that. And I think it's so interesting that the people that have been marginalized or keeping away from education or grew up in a society or culture that traumatized them and they live in fear. And because of that, they blame other people and justify stealing and justify hurting. Like those are the people that need us to actually show up for them because when we do their light can shine, they see their greater truth and then their life changes. I mean, it's like, 
it's just easy to be in a room of successful, talented, untraumatized people and everybody high fives each other and we all keep making money and it's fun. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we rise as a society and culture. We have to make sacrifices. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, um, do you want to share some details about your show at Dimension Gallery and, and say anything else about that work? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have my first solo show in Austin right now at Dimension Gallery. Uh, it's at the corner of Springdale and Airport. Uh, it's a really great space ran by two really awesome, amazing people in this town. And kind of the nature of the show is a lot of what we've talked about in this interview. Uh, so I chose to title it Impossible Until It's Done. Uh, one, because it's so hard to make the steel and glass pieces, get them to work. Um, I have a sculpture in the wall that's six bubbles of glass and steel, and it took 16 tries to get the six. Yeah. But the name of the show kind of relates back to how along the path of my journey, I, I'm told by people what I can't do. Like when I wanted to start the business building big art, one of my close friends was like, well, don't you need to like work for somebody else that does it for like six years and kind of figure out how to, I don't I just think that anytime we put a wall between ourselves and, and what our goal is, it just puts us further from that gate. And I, um, that's a big part about what the show is, is some of the structures and rules I'd begin to began to build for myself since moving here and I realized we're not serving me and very unhealthy for me. Mm. That show is about exploding that perception to build a new new set of rules, I guess, or a new approach. So the show is basically like there's this unknown force that's crash landed in the gallery and smashed through this mirror that was a perception of myself and also how I was seeing myself through the reflection of somebody else that I had a lot of respect for that was being very like unhealthy for me. And it's about representing that shift and representing that belief in change. And I feel really good about what I've made in the space. And I'd love to have as many people come out and take a look at it as possible. Uh, when are the hours typically? Uh, generally, they're open Thursday through Saturday from noon to six. Uh, there's a lot of construction going on in the area. So the hours are a little more shaky right now instead of that standard time. So I'm trying to run as much of it as I can. So Mm. anytime that I'm around, I'm going to be there. So like this weekend, like I'm going there when we get out of here, I'll be there till six Friday. I've got like half of those hours. And then Saturday, because the vintage shop is open, it'll be open. But I would just assume it's open Thursday to Saturday Mm -hmm. from 12 to six. And if you get there and it's not, then look me up on Instagram, GD Wright underscore art. Send me a message, and I'll whip over there on my moped, and we'll <laughs> we'll look at it whenever you want. Because you're in the hood. Yeah, whatever. I live over there. Um, well, I think that's it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time, Scott. Yeah, you too. Is it's there anything good. else you want to leave people with, artists that might be listening in Austin? I feel like I've already rambled on about yeah, yeah, so yeah. much. Um, no, I think you said a lot of great things. I appreciate I just, it. I just think that we have a greater strength in mass and the more we can come together and support each other, the greater our potential is. Don't build walls. Don't tell people they can't do it. Show up for the people you think that you can and you have the strength to and take care of yourself. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks David. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Take care.